For almost three centuries, Sotheby's has been the place to discover the greatest stories of creativity. We've been the temporary custodians of some of the world's finest treasures, which you can see on display in our galleries on any given day. Welcome to Sotheby's Talks, the podcast that celebrates art, culture, and collecting. I'm Marina Ruiz Colomer, and I want to invite you inside the world of Sotheby's, a place where you can find the extraordinary, including contemporary art, old master paintings, rare books, jewelry, and memorabilia. I'm a specialist in Sotheby's contemporary department, and throughout my career, I have championed the work of female artists. In 2021, I co-organized the first cross-category sale of work by women at Sotheby's. In the last few years, we have seen the demand for work by female artists increase dramatically, but there's still work to be done. So on this podcast, we're sharing some of the conversations we've been holding with our experts, along with tastemakers, collectors, and luminaries from the world of art and culture. In this episode, originally recorded at Sotheby's in London, award-winning singer-songwriter Celeste is joined by Sotheby's Helena Newman for a conversation about female surrealist artists and the profound impact that their work has had on culture over the decades. Here's our host, director of the Design Museum, Tim Marlowe, with more. Hello everyone, I'm Tim Marlowe and I'm delighted to welcome you to this Sotheby's talk on surrealism. I want to introduce you to two rather brilliant guests I've got here with me. The British award-winning singer-songwriter Celeste. Uh, in 2019, she won the BBC's annual Sound of Pole and the Rising Star Award. And her debut album, Not Your Muse, was released in 2021, went into number one and has surrealist overtones and undertones, more of which also shortly. And of course, Helena Newman, chairman of Sotheby's Europe and worldwide head of Impressionist and Modern Art. So, and starting with you, Helena, why do you think surrealism is having this particular moment now? Well, I think it's lots of things coming together at the same moment. I mean, first of all, you could argue that actually surrealism never left, you know, I mean, of course, technically surrealism ended in 66 with the death of André Breton. So you have the sort of technical end of an art historical movement, which really, in any case, flourished pre-Second World War. But I would argue that the legacy just endures. I mean, if anything, there's the imagery of surrealism and the drawing of dreams and the focus on the imagination and the subconscious is something that so many artists today draw on for their inspiration is still important to us. And I think it couldn't be more topical as we deal with the sort of uncertain world and our, our positions as humans in that world. And I think surrealism is addressing that. It's really interesting though, Celeste, because it's, surrealism was at first of all poetic, philosophical, and then visual arts. And then it's permeated different areas. So that breadth probably helps reverberate in the minds of creative people like you today uh, as a musician. But w w what's your sense of why it's still, it's still important today or it chimes today? Yeah, definitely. I agree with everything you said, actually. And I think um, something I was thinking about last night as I was falling asleep and, and thinking about surrealism and why it appeals to me. And I think what it is, is it gives you some form of escapism, but there within it is something sort of underpinning um, a reality. And perhaps it's a reality that we're running away from. I know, for example, when I see a Salvador Dali and what speaks to me in that, say, not to speak badly about this, but say opposed to something like this is the raw emotion in it. There is a darkness within it. And I think that perhaps 
in your everyday circumstance, in your everyday life where things can be quite menial and quite mundane and you'd perhaps rather live in ignorance than malevolence or despair or, or any anxious feelings that can come with every day, you hear something or you see something and it allows that expression to live, but it, it's something that you can just experience and endure momentarily within art and within music and within film. And I think that's why we look to these things um, because it offers us that moment of sanctity and knowing there's something out there in which we can relate to, but we don't have to endure that kind of existence as a constant. So it's not escape, well, it is escapism, but it's transcendental. It takes you out of yourself, but it heightens your sense of self, which yeah. is an interesting definition yeah. of surrealism. Yeah. So how did you come to have a particular interest in surrealism creatively? Well, I think the first image I saw was the Shirley Temple Salvador Dali piece, and I actually had a print of it on my wall when I was a teenager. And I'm not sure exactly what it was that drew me to that. Later on, I made friends with somebody at school and he had showed me the Salvador Dali cookbook that his grandma had had for a really long time. And that's where I started to like realize these things that I, I, I didn't have a formal education in who these works were by and all of these sorts of things. But I kept finding myself like coming back to the same artists and the same images. and. I guess in video and in fashion and in music, which all definitely have to work with each other, I think when you're creating a world as a musician, all of those things have to align and they can also empower you and the way that you're seen and also the way that you perform. And I recently made a video for a song of mine called Tonight Tonight and one of the references was actually a film called Being John Malkovich, which I guess is um, so oh, surrealist. Yeah, yeah, an example of how that's influenced today. But recently you, you were involved in a, a project at Tate Modern that involved a specific Salvador Dali painting, weren't you? Yeah, so I was invited to do a sort of immersive performance and the piece of work that we mused, if you like, was um, Metamorphosis of Narcissus. And the idea was to create a piece of set design that somewhat mimicked and kind of mirrored some of the symbolism and images in the painting itself. And I performed a single from my debut album called Not Your Muse, which was definitely influenced by sort of my observation and my sort of growing intrigue of the uh, relationships between the artist and the muse. And I guess in the last two to three years, I'd started to think about what my relationship, I guess what my relationship was with certain power structures within the music industry. And in reading about certain muses and artists and watching documentaries growing up, I guess a part of me, like being romantic, wanted to see how I could kind of learn from understanding those relationships and likening it to my relationship in those sorts of corporate structures. And in doing so, it really helped me to understand how to sort of like empower myself. It's interesting because Dali was a showman and I think a self-confessed narcissist. And if he wasn't self-confessed, really? he ought oh, to But I love the fact that you, you used it as a way of sort of transcending that. And you looked at the relationship he had with his own, with Gala, his wife. Yeah. Uh, but sort of reversed the idea of the woman as object and, and, and exploited muse. Yeah, well, I guess my understanding of muse and artist, or of what I felt from even just seeing the posture of these women in photographs and paintings and just 
depictions all across the board. Um, it felt like there was something like quite powerless about them. And although they were being given a kind of pedestal and although they were being given a moment to flourish in their beauty and everything else, something about it felt quite forced and something about them always felt a little bit uncomfortable. And then I sort of began to read about Gala and it struck me and I sort of began to wonder if, if perhaps the power play was the opposite way around. And, and, and actually um, some of the artists that we're going to speak about later on, like Leonora Carrington and um, is it Leonora Feeney? Yeah. I actually read that both of their husbands were sort of like poets and artists and they initially started out as the muse in those relationships, but their response, I guess, and I guess in my own experience of somewhat feeling oppressed was actually then to come out with like even a greater amount of work. And that was kind of their protest to not being kind of just in the background. It's definitely inspired me to learn more and more about these women behind the scenes. So let's just go back to the beginnings because it's a coherent movement, isn't it? It's formed in Paris in the early 20s with a manifesto and a group of poets and painters and philosophers who gather around Henri Breton. Yes, exactly. And, and as I said, it starts as a, a literary movement, actually, and with, with poetry, with Andre Breton as the head. And, and, but it's very much coming out of, I mean, it has to be seen as historical context, it's coming out of Dadaism, which in turn is coming out of the sort of ruins of the First World War. So it is a movement that is, is all immersive. It's to do with um, a sort of revolutionary reaction to the status quo. Uh, coming to terms with the destruction. Many of the artists had actually fought in the First World War, they'd experienced, you know, they came back with, you know, shell shock and, and you know, their world has turned upside down. And so, so that, that the whole experience and that whole kind of thinking that all the rigid hierarchies couldn't stand anymore and how that was going to be addressed through words and imagery was, I think, really how it, how it all starts. It is, and, and, and like every radical avant-garde movement, Dada, which ultimately sought to destroy itself. Yeah. The artist couldn't help but create. So you get someone like Kurt Schwitters mm. making Dada collages yes. that actually have stood the test of time, but themselves become a trigger for surrealist free association. Yes, yeah, so that kind of, I think with Schwitters, you get that brilliant sort of nonsense of, you know, like a train ticket or a piece of string juxtaposed with the button. And it's just sort of found objects reassembled in a different, in a sort of different, surprising way, and that, in a way, forms the root of a lot of what happens with uh, surrealist paintings and imagery, where you get this sort of surprise juxtaposition of the everyday to make you think again and shock and surprise and delight, but also destabilize. Yeah, there's a quote, isn't there, from the, the, the French poet Lautrimont about the chance encounter of, of an umbrella and a sewing machine uh, on a dissecting table. Which we kind of think of, but then you think, well, there's three realities brought together and there's a kind of trigger or a spark. Yeah. But obviously, you talk about the literary, so automatic writing, doodling, going with the flow, letting your subconscious manifest itself. is interesting, say, in the context of Miro, who talks about not trying to paint something, but just beginning painting and see where the mark-making process takes him. Yeah, so this was, I mean, alongside... 
their kind of uh, obsession with the with dreams was this other thread, which was automatism and and actually trying to go straight to you know bypass and go straight to the subconscious and to try to put that down on paper. Actually, they tried also with words with this sort of nonsense poems, but in the visual equivalent is something like mirror, where you see there's just the sort of almost hieroglyphic forms and and some forms just reduced to their absolute. Um, sort of calligraphic um, reduction, and it, it's extraordinary. And it's Signs like, and symbols. Yes, exactly. Coalescing into yeah. ideas. Yeah. But then you get someone like Masson, Andre Masson, underrated artist, I think. Yeah. I don't know what the market says about Masson, but he uses automatic writing paper, but also pours glue, uh, and then and sand. sand. Yeah. It's wonderful, so you get the surface and the texture, and then the, the, the sort of free-flowing forms and just like almost like uh, you, you know you're you're almost as if you closed your eyes on the and just let your arm take you freely without any sort of any intent getting in the way which actually finds its most abstract and epic form in America 20 30 years later doesn't it i mean all this that was going on in in, in paris in this very very tight knit community of artists is again disrupted with the, with the outbreak of the Second World War and the emigration from Europe to America, and then these artists are turning up mainly in New York, Miro, one of them, of course, and and sort of creating this extraordinary um, uh, dialogue between Europe and America, which lays the seeds for abstract expressionism. I mean, it couldn't have happened without that influx from Europe, whether it's Gorky or Pollock and. And, and so, so in that sense, the surrealist legacy is going right through the 20th century. I've always wanted to do this, and thanks for giving me the opportunity. Never mind the Pollocks. Let's move on from automatism now and get to dream painting. Um, a bit of a Sex Pistols reference there, you might. <laughs> um, so uh, automatism's one aspect, yeah. but the dream paintings have yeah. their origins actually in Max Ernst and others, don't they? they the surrealists believed in, I mean, they became political eventually, yes, but yeah. they believed in that the world could be revolutionized internally. The mind and the subconscious were, were at the heart of that. Do we still subscribe to that possibility or does that seem naive now? What, that the, that the mind could... That revolutions can happen by a change of perception rather than... Yes, well, I think they can. I absolutely think they can. But I, I mean, I think that there was a lot of idealism in, in the Surrealist movement at the beginning because of this sort of, you know, as I said, this sort of horror of the war and this sort of sense that... But I think there's still the... Um, yeah, I think we do, but I wonder whether creatively, do you yeah. think it's possible to fundamentally change the world by shifting people's perspectives creatively? Yeah, I do really believe yes. that that's possible. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. It's a conversation that I have with my friends quite regularly at the moment. But then we kind of joke and say, would our generation then really want to restructure a country or restructure a society or something like that? Um, I feel perhaps these days and people feel heard because they can subscribe to or participate in a movement or a group through their telephone and it doesn't necessarily require um, sort of like taking to the streets or being bold and being heard, perhaps in the way that these artists were when they were around. Um, but I think it always begins internally. And a lot of the artists that you've spoken about and from what, I've, what little I've read about them, um, a lot of them come from quite spiritual backgrounds and perhaps that's why they are found where they are found in their work. Um, because I think that kind of 
um, spiritual health is something that I think can allow you to travel beyond your initial sort of human capacity, I think. And it's, it's something that I think we've perhaps neglected in the last like 10 or 20 years as the world's got faster and we have access to all of these things. And actually reading about all of these artists in the last few days and something that I think about in general is how perhaps in a time where things were a lot simpler, we could think of these like brave and great ideas and actually think about how to pick up and follow through with them. And so, um, yeah, I do believe that it's something we can do within our minds, but then it's also about communication, which is, I think, something people have somewhat lost the art of a little bit these yeah. days. But it's amazing how much we communicate just by imagery. You know, mm. the Instagram world, where sometimes true. an image yeah. was, which brings us back to surrealism, to Magritte. Those early Magritte paintings have this amazingly arresting quality of absurdity, playfulness, but they're utterly memorable. Well, more of Magritte later, but Celeste, you mentioned actually a particular and growing interest you had in women surrealists. Mm. And this is interesting, isn't it, Eleanor? Because in the last few years, revisionist art history and just the quality of work yeah. that were made by various art, women artists yeah. who were around the surrealist media, yes. but were not fully, certainly not fully respected yes. by the movement, which was very male and fairly misogynistic. Yeah, I mean, if you think of that photo we saw at the beginning of the surrealist group all lined up together, you know, not a woman in the image. And yet, in fact, each behind, you know, with each of these male figures were f female artists, uh, uh, models, muses, artists in their own right. And the, and the role of women was incredibly important in the group, but it was, you know, within a context of a time when it was misogynist and, and they were, you know, very much subjugated to what the male artists were doing. Often the women were of a younger generation and the artists didn't actually become, uh, you know, flourishing in their careers until much later. So but there's been a real reappraisal though, I think. There've been a number of them excellent exhibitions that have brought this to light. You know, the Tanning Show, um, Tate Modern. Uh, there was a wonderful show in, in, in Germany just devoted to Cerritos uh, uh, female artists. Um, there's been a huge reappraisal, uh, for instance, of Frida Kahlo, who's now, you know, was a world famous, recognizable artist, but at the time she was, you know, in years and years of obscurity. Um, but I think this whole question of, you know, whether the the, the, the female figures in this movement were subject or object, this whole play on the muse and the artist self-portrait, self-portraitist, which was very common with the female artists like Leonora, um, Leonora Finney or Leonora uh, Carrington or um, uh, a, a number of the, the female artists who had to use themselves as subjects. And is the market doing well for women's Yes, so alongside all these exhibitions that really sort of readdress the kind of traditional art historical way that surrealism was written about and, and appraised, have, and the, the art market itself has reappraised. So this Leonora Carrington image was sold, wasn't it, in New York last year? So the Leonore Carrington was sold uh, for, you know, for a record in New York last year. There was a huge amount of interest. And Tanning's also doing well. Tanning's doing very well. Which brings us to this image, which you, Celeste, 
could have. You weren't you interested in weren't you interested in performing in front of this one? But you you opted for yeah. Dali. Yeah. <laughs> well, having seen the results, I'm glad you opted for Dali. Yeah. But this would have been a fantastic image. I mean, it's yeah, kind it's of a hotel room with a collapsed sunflower. Yeah, you know, I only just realised it was a hotel room. I was. Corridor, yeah. Yeah, and perhaps in my experience in the last year, I would have been more drawn to this painting because I've had to spend a lot of time in hotel rooms <laughs> and quite haunted ones actually. Um, but um, yeah, I think the reason why I chose the Dali piece is because of what the flower, the daffodil represented in that painting. And although some flowers are my lucky flower, I didn't really appreciate the symbolism of the sunflower opposed to the daffodil in the Dali painting. Um, well, because in the Dali painting, it's a symbol of rebirth. In this, it's destroyed. I mean, it's a symbol of impending death. Decay. Decay. Yeah. 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 And am I right in thinking one of them is the real girl and then one of them's the doll? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. I mean, that's also very strange because yeah. you don't see that immediately. And then it, it, that's, yes. Well, she um, didn't Tanning love Gothic novels. So there's a kind of Gothic aspect yes. to this kind yeah. of painting. Yeah. And she talked about it as a confrontation. Which... Exactly. And you think you're sort of looking in on some story you can't quite understand what's happened, if there's been, you know, what, what the, there's some either terrible thing that's happened or going to happen or, or something, and it's very mysterious, but you don't know quite what you're looking at. One of the things that links at least two of those artists is uh, the, the fact they were mentored by and had a relationship with Max Ernst, but let's park the patriarchy out of that yes. conversation because actually they're transcending that connection. The other thing that really interests me, random observation, is every one of those three lived well into their 80s. And in the case of Tanning, she was 101 when she died. I quite like this idea. We're seeing it with Louise Bourgeois as well, yes. the Haywood, yeah. that actually, this is a generalisation, but go with me, that women seem to have this kind of longevity in their creative yeah. lives and actually start to produce incredibly interesting work as they get older. Whereas you could say the myth of the male artist is often the kind of loss of power as they get older or the, the brightly burning youth that, that, then, that then is perhaps less potent. I mean, Dahl is an example of that, isn't it? Dahl's later work is not. Yes, isn't, isn't, yes, exactly. But I think that they, they, so many of these women had careers that stretched into the 60s, 70s, you know, and, and, and only being reappraised now. And in a way, that's incredibly exciting to see. A lot of the body of work was quite unknown for many decades. So we'll look a bit at the legacy of the impact. I mean, your living, breathing example of that, Celeste, you've picked up on Thank surrealism and, and you've pushed it in, in, your, in, in different directions. Where else do we see the legacy of surrealism now in contemporary culture? Well, I think it's, it has sort of become embedded into contemporary culture. If you think, you know, whether it's advertising or film or uh, design or photography, I mean, so many elements, even in our language, actually, but, it, but, it, but it's so many elements, it's just there all around us. And, you know, we refer to things as surreal. We, 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 we recognise the imagery... Um, uh, you know, the, the, the sort of key Magritian images or Dali-esque images that they're around us. It's, in, it's incredible how much it's embedded now into our sort of culture, our visual culture. Yeah, via things like pop art, yes. I suppose, in a kind of way. But that idea of the subconscious, I mean, advertising, the subliminal idea about how things might appeal to the subconscious is, is, is interesting in a way. Um, do you consciously 
want to explore subconscious reaction to your work? Because a lot of surrealism was predicated on that. Or is that something you just leave well alone and it's up to the individual? Um, I think it's definitely down to the individual how they are to interpret something. And I think it's just something that you do without realising. And That's, that's fair to an, yeah. to an unfair question. <laughs> yeah. So, so let's, let's talk briefly before we yeah. go to my group about taste. Yes. Because mm. now Dali is, I mean, I'll defend Dali to the hilt. I think he's a fascinating artist, an important artist. But there is a certain snobbery around that Dali is a kind of adolescent thing or something, your phase you go through. Yeah. And it's probably because it's so heightened and some people say garish. But it is interesting how taste and surrealism, surrealism in the sense plays with the idea of taste and bad taste, doesn't it? Or am I just... Yeah, yes, no, I think snobbery. it does because of the shock and the, the kind of um, the absolute sort of unedited shock value of some of the juxtapositions of images or their kind of exaggerations and the, and the, the imagery. So I think that, that in a way is, is uh, where, that, where that comes from. And, but why it's still relevant today in a way, because don't you think we're living now in a world that's all about your instant, you know, you open your phone, you see an image and immediately you react to it and then you moved on to something else. And in a way that, you know, it's so much of, um, the sort of great Dali and Magritte images have that immediate impact, don't they? Mm, that's very true. Talking of good taste, bad taste, look at the, look at the Dali sofa. Fantastic. <laughs> I mean, it's still something that I feel slightly uneasy about putting my buttocks on. <laughs> but, it, but, it, but it was made as an... Uh, came out of the idea of an object, didn't yeah. it, first of all? It was made for Edward James, the English collector in the 1930s, yes. who ordered a pair of them. But Dali, of course, said... He'd seen images that reminded him of Mae West's lips uh, in the rocks near Cadiz, where he lived and worked, which brings us round to Narcissus. And the thing that's interesting about Dali specifically, good taste or bad taste, is it, 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 he saw images and other images. I mean, he called it his paranoid critical methods. That, that was his description of it all. But I love that duality of seeing, seeing a number of things in a particular image and then playing with them. And, and the sofa is playful. And maybe we sometimes understate the playfulness and the humour of surrealism. Yeah, well, I mean, I, I think you totally got that sort of, you've got the humour and you've got the, the sort of slight, um, uh, you know, particularly with Magritte as well, with all, all the, the sort of crazy images of the apple in the face of the of the bowler hat man and so so many images that are just um you, you don't feel they're unforgettable in their in their sort of sort of slightly unsettling wit it's interesting celeste how you, you were able to use surrealism in general and dali in particular for a set design uh, so that i mean a notion of an interior uh, I mean, it's interesting how it, you felt it lent, it lent itself or demanded that, because, I mean, that's one of the premises of the Design Museum's exhibition, is looking how surrealism actually impacted on taste. Sometimes there were pure interiors that were surreal, but in other instances, it was just a, a, an inflection, a, a, a sofa, an ornament or whatever. Um, did, did you feel that you were true to the spirit of surrealism in that set that you designed, or true to the spirit of yourself, or did the two inextricably feel linked? I felt that perhaps I was true to the spirit of that specific painting, but perhaps if I was being true and at the root of surrealism, I would have done something completely opposite to the painting and interpreted the feeling I had when I looked at it and reacted to it in that way, rather than reacting to it aesthetically. Um, 
but I think perhaps there's time for that in the future. Yeah. I suppose the Dali lobster telephone is the best example of that because all kids, when they see it, get the humour. I mean, it's just absurd yeah. but yeah. funny. Uh, and, and there's a lovely comment that Dali once said that playfully in a book of his that um, he was a bit disappointed when he went to a restaurant and, and ordered grilled lobster that they didn't give him a boy on the telephone. <laughs> um, but, but then it's also, I mean, the idea that you'd put something like that to your ear has another dimension yeah. to it. The fact that he puts the genitals, of, uh, which is in the tail of the lobster, where your mouth is, there's kind of Freudian assistance. Yeah, yeah. they're, they're interestingly layered, aren't they? Yes. And the, and the implications are um, broad. Anyway, can I thank you both for your illuminating and often dazzling contribution to tonight's discussion. Uh, thanks so much to Helena and Celeste. Thank you all of you for joining. This was Sotheby's Talk Season 1. Thank you for joining us. To step further into the world of Sotheby's, you can visit any of our galleries around the world. They're open to the public. For more information, visit Sotheby's.com. And don't forget to follow the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Season 1, which features conversations with guests including Marina Bramovic, Mary McCartney, Tracy Emin, Paloma Picasso, and Julianne Moore, is now live. <laughs>